Hello, and thank you for joining us. This is Brian, your host of the Parish the Thought Show. The opinions of said host and our guests have not been sanitized or scientifically tested, so please consume at your own risk. Ladies and gentlemen, and whoever else is listening, my guest on the program today is the CEO of Vortex Management based in Layton, Utah. He and his team of super smarty smart genius types are revolutionizing and putting the sexy back into the recycling industry by making it so simple, even a teenager can do it. I mean, like, who wouldn't want that? Please help me in welcoming Paul Bergen. All right. So anyway, Paul Bergen, tell me, tell me why, tell me, okay, what's the company called? Uh, Vortex Waste Energy. Vortex Waste Energy. Right. Vortex as in V-O-R-T-E-C-H. So it's a play on the, you know, tech, clean tech uh, okay. word. All right. Vortex. All right. I'm going to write text. Vortex. Yeah. Vortex. Vortex. Yeah. Vortex. And then I'll, I'm going to do an intro at the end. As weird as that sounds. Vortex. Tex. So V-O-R-T-E-C-H. Oh, Vortex. Gotcha. Yeah. A vortex and... Was the company started for other purposes than what you guys, the pro big project you guys are working on now that's going to save the world? <laughs> Good question. So we, uh, we started out as a technology incubator, essentially. And, and for people who don't know what that means, AKA me, what does that mean? Technology yeah. incubator. Yeah. So uh, the, the company has been built around a couple of engineers who have a bunch, a bunch of intellectual property and a bunch of patents pending, uh, a bunch of great ideas. Uh, but being engineers and and being on their on their own, essentially, um, they didn't have the ability and resources and experience to commercialize uh, all of those ideas and those patents and patents pending. And so uh, the. The, the group of people that I'm with now, the, the partners in Vortex uh, kind of came together as um, the engineers uh, met up with business people, got to know them, uh, started to say, hey, you know, we should, we should form a company together. Our skills are complementary. Uh, then they had added another person and then another person and another person with more skills, uh, you know, different complementary skills. And and now there's a, a group of nine of us, and uh, each each person has you know nice compl uh, nice complementary skills. So um, we decided to to form this company to commercialize one or more of, of a few different technologies that uh, that the engineers have come up with over probably a period of the last fifteen to twenty years on and off. Uh, some of this is the typical develop in your garage technology, you know, um, and some of it's been, uh, you know, just a, kind of a personal dream of, of, of a couple of them to finally get the opportunity to do a bunch of research and development and pursue uh, the, the commercialization of, of one or more of the technologies. So we've honestly, we, we took... Um, kind of meandered through the forest a little bit <laughs> and we were thinking about one technology and then we we're thinking about another one and spent a little bit of money on both and then and then uh came to realize that the current one that we're we're commercializing right now is probably the easiest to get to market and uh, that's the recycling technology uh, we recycle any hydrocarbon which is plastics or oil used motor oil or uh, tire shred or coal waste um, or the interior recycled uh, components of your car, the interior of your car, um, anything like that is, is, is a hydrocarbon, it's hydrocarbon waste. And that's what we're commercializing right now. Um, we've been working on air emissions, some air emissions technology that's pretty cool. Uh, we'll know later this year uh, if if we're starting to close in on some of that technology and, and a few others, but right now we're 
We're spending most of our time on recycling and a little bit of time on air emissions technology. Well, you mentioned garage technology starting in your garage, right? I think there's a couple other kind of big name companies that started in the garage. I think Microsoft, uh, Apple, yeah, yeah. <laughs> started in the garage, right? So you guys are in good company. Yep. Yeah. And how, how much, as we talk about this, is this obviously not classified because you're talking to me about it, but what, can you share like what, you know, some of these big things that you're working on, how, the details on, on what that is or what it's going to do? Sure. Without being drove out, driven out into the country and left for dead. Somewhere. <laughs> you bet. Uh, so the, the recycling technology is the one that we're focusing on the most right now. And we're uh, talking to prospective investors. Uh, we believe that we could uh, close on several million dollars worth of investment here in the next week or two, which would be really exciting. Um, and uh, so the recycling technology, just to, just to be really brief, uh, it can recycle any hydrocarbon. So most of the recycling technologies today are, are very specific and very focused on a type of plastic uh, or just shredded tires or just uh, used motor oil, for example. And, and that's fine and, and uh, that's all good. The problem is, is that we've, we've got a bunch of problems uh, that prevent more recycling. So for plastics, uh, for example, um, many plastics uh, are difficult to recycle. So when you see a, you know, you see type one plastic or type two plastic, type three plastic on a, on a water bottle or a, a plastic container, that's telling you what kind of plastic it's, it's made of. And, uh, you know, water bottles are easy to sort of recycle these days. Uh, you know, uh, PVC pipes or uh, other types of plastic, uh, PET plastic, um, not so much. And so what that means is, is that uh, uh, we have to sort plastic into similar types. So they're homogenous types of plastic and they have to be clean and they have to be shredded so after, after different types of plastic are, are gathered and sorted together in one type, then they're washed and then they're shredded up and then they're available for recycling. And that's a very inefficient, very expensive process. And so what we've done is we've said, what if we could recycle any hydrocarbon in a system where you don't need to sort it into like kinds and you don't have to wash it and you don't have to shred it? Is it kind of like a teenager just throwing everything in the laundry at the same time? Yeah, that's a really good analogy. Yeah, okay. like the, 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 the 12 year olds, like, why can't I throw the colors in with the white with the whites, right? Yeah. That's a very, I, I'm going to use that actually, Brian, that's a great, that's a great analogy. So we want, but see, the, here's the issue is that the, the teenager often doesn't do their own wash because they think it's too hard or too time consuming, right? To separate the whites from the colors and the brights from the darks and the really dirty from the lightly dirty or lightly soiled laundry, right? If you tell, if you told your 12 year old, they have to separate their laundry into five different buckets and then they have to do each load of laundry separately and then fold each laundry separately and then put them away separately, right? How often do you think the 12 year old would actually do that laundry? Well, oh, that's game over. It's not happening at all. <laughs> So it's a similar, yeah. And then make it really expensive. Then charge, then charge your 12-year-old about a hundred a hundred bucks for each different type of laundry. Yeah, that's how that, often how often do you think that would happen? That almost sounds like a government program. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you are absolutely okay. right. That makes so, sense. So, so now that's a great analogy. So if you charge, a, if it's a really expensive and very time consuming and complex for your teenager to do their laundry, it's just not gonna happen. That's a perfect analogy for today's plastic recycling. You have to sort it up into seven different buckets. It's expensive to do that. Um, you know, I, I was talking to a company in Southern Idaho, <clears throat> a recycling company, and they said, we have a curbside recycling program and you, you're supposed to put you know, water bottles in one bucket and all of your other plastic in another bucket and glass and metal in another bucket and then we'll recycle, right? 
And so they're trying to get the, the consumers to recite, to help sort out. So it's not as expensive for the company to sort all this stuff out. The problem is, is, is the guy, the manager said, we get beer bottles in the plastic bottle bucket. We get um, shampoo bottles in the water bottle bucket. We get banana peels and orange peels. We get dirty diapers in the plastic bucket. He said, you know, a lot of people are like, they're, they're trying to be anti-government or anti-municipality or whatever. And they're saying, let's just see how much we can screw this up by throwing in a dirty diaper with the water bottles. And it makes it incredibly difficult for recycling programs to survive on that basis. Yeah, that makes sense. Cause it's in, in people it's, and I have heard, and you correct me if I'm wrong, cause you know more about this world than I do, but when they do separate it, I swear I've seen them dump all that stuff into the same receptacle at a dump. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I misinterpreted it, but is that, it's like, what's the, what's the point? It makes you feel good if you're separating it, but if it's all going in the same truck in the same hole, what's the point? Part of, part of the reason I'm here is because we took our, plat. we would, we don't have a plastics recycling program at our curbside. And so at first it was my wife, bless her heart, man, she's awesome. She said, we have to save the planet and we have to separate out our plastics and we'll take them to the dump, which is about a 10 to 15 minute drive from here. And at first I was a little bit reluctant, but I'm like, you're right. So we would separate out all of our plastics for a couple of weeks and then we'd take them to the dump and you have to pay extra for the tipping fee for the plastics, right? And then, and then uh, you're right, you, you know, they say, put them over here. Well, here's the problem about half the time. It's exactly what you said. They said, we don't have a plastic pile today. Just throw it on the top of everything else. And I'm like, seriously, like I, I've been saving the plastic for two weeks. I just paid, you know, 10 bucks for the privilege of recycling the plastic. And you just tell me to dump it on everything else. And I said, why is that? That's not right. And the guy said, well, we, you know, it's kind of hitting, I think he said, it's kind of hit and miss around here. That's, that's the state of the, so just like you, I was totally disillusioned and I'm like, why would I pay extra and do all of this hassle if they're not even going to recycle it in the first place? That's how, how, because my philosophy has always been, hey, smart people like you, Paul, make it easy for me and I will do it. But if it's difficult and costly, I'm not going to do it. Is that just a lazy American easy life mentality or am I, or, or, or can it be made to the, so it's like people don't feel like they're making a difference that they're, you know, they're just, does that make sense? What I'm trying yeah, to say? Right. No, absolutely. I mean, look, uh, you know, I'm not going to make a comment on, you know, Americans ability to do the hard things or not, because there's, there's a mixed bag there. Um, sometimes we do really hard things and sometimes not so much, but I think it's a, I think it's a mix, Brian, of, of two things. One, um, is, it, is, it, is it relatively straightforward to do? I don't know if easy is the right word, but is it straightforward to do? And two, is it economical? Is it economical in the system, right? So if, if you and I could separate, you know, water bottles from all other types of plastic and put two buckets out on the road, you know, most people, generally speaking, want to help the environment, want to do the right thing. And those programs are moderately successful, right? That's that those systems generally work if there's if there's a uh, infrastructure to process and recycle those plastics efficiently once they're actually collected. The issue is, is that right now in the world, roughly 12 to 14% of plastics are recycled. 12 to 14%. So, so say, so for example, in your, in the, in the teenager, you know, doing the laundry, if 12 to 14% of their laundry got washed, right. You would say that that's a really bad system. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then pretty soon they'd be saying, Hey, I need more clothes because only 12% or 14% of my clothes ever get washed. And I can't wear this dirty stuff anymore. And so you got to buy me new clothes. And that's, that's basically where we're at in this world today is 12 to 14% gets recycled. The rest uh, eventually ends up in landfills or the oceans or the rivers or along the side of the road. 
And, and so we need, we need two things. We need the willingness of people to say, hey, I wanna make a difference. We need to make a difference. We all need to chip in, that's number one. Number two, we need a system, a system you know, in both developing and developed worlds to be able to handle the recycling. And right now, because it's so expensive and difficult to sort and shred and wash plastics, uh, or take out or recycle the interior of your car when it's when the car is being recycled and trashed, or to recycle uh, coal coal waste that that isn't sold to a power plant or or a chemical company or whatever. Um, it's just hard to do in some cases, and we don't have the infrastructure, and so we don't have efficient systems that someone could plug themselves into. And that's why we, that's why we've got twelve to fourteen percent recycling. Yeah. Cause it's not efficient for it's, it's, it's costly. Not a, cause I know I'm, if it's going to cost me more, I'm just that lazy that I'll probably like, mm, not going to do that. Cause I have other things that are more valuable to me. So maybe I'm a careless steward of my environment with that attitude. I don't know. Uh, you know, I mean, look, there's people want to feel like what they're doing is going to make a difference. I think. Yeah, and and I think generally most people really do want to make a difference. A lot of times people don't know how, or they don't know if it's really working, and that's a problem. And I think you just mentioned like you don't know if it's really going to work. You don't know. I mean, there's a lot of press reports saying that hey, you you put your plastic into buckets and it gets picked up at the curbside, and most of it ends up in the landfill. And to some degree, that is true. Like the in the program in Idaho that I was talking about they uh, recycle about one third to one half of the plastics that are collected and they landfill the other half to two thirds because they're not easily recyclable. And that, that fact is stunning to a lot of people. They say, hey, I'm putting my plastics into the process to be recycled and you're telling me half of it goes to a landfill and that makes me feel like, you know, it's just a whole big waste of time. And that's, that's a problem right now. The why is not clarified or maybe we the yeah the why behind it is still kind of what's the word a mystery i think well mm -hmm. i mean generally speaking yeah i think people understand the why but on a personal level I'm like, why am i doing this if it's not going to matter right so we know the why but we don't know the why and and that lingering doubt causes a lot of great people who care about the environment not to take a logical step or two in order to try and protect the environment because they're like, why am I doing this if it's going to end up in the landfill anyway? So you guys are solving this problem. We are. Uh, so we, our system is designed to avoid the need in the vast majority of the cases, maybe not in a hundred percent, but in the vast majority of the cases to avoid the need to pre-sort plastics into different types of plastic and to shred the plastic. And if you, if you can take almost any mix of plastic of type one, two, three, four, five, six, and seven, in almost any mix, uh, we're not quite sure if we're to any, any single mix, well, we may not be at 100% of those, you know, 100% of any mix, but like of 90% of any mix imaginable. Uh, and you don't have to wash it, you don't have to, sort it out by type and then you don't have to shred it into half inch pieces uh, you've just you've just improved the economics and the ability of cities and companies and towns and companies to recycle that plastic much much more efficiently and that's what we're going that's that's one of the problems that we're solving there's a few others that we're solving as well but that's one of the main ones so how close are you to solve in that one? Uh, we have a, a patent pending. We've got nine patents pending that deal with uh, processing the feedstock, processing the plastic and hydrocarbons that are coming in, and then processing the, the hydrocarbon and turning it into gas, uh, what's called syngas, and then um, synthetic crude or power. And we've some of our patents effectively deal with that uh, in making that process more efficient, and then um, and then we are able to essentially convert plastics and hydrocarbon to 
synthetic crude that has 70% lower carbon footprint than oil out of the ground, or electricity straight from recycled sources, or hydrogen for fuel cells, or ammonia for clean fuel cells. So we're trying to make a system that's very flexible on the input and very flexible in terms of the power that you get out. Uh, yep. You know, let, let me let me suggest a question. Is, is this a massive facility that you have to build, Paul? <laughs> Paul, that is a phenomenal question. What type of yeah, infrastructure has to be built for something like this? That's a really good question because that's what different, that's what's one of the things that differentiates us. So most of the recycling plants today, the vast majority of them are a few city blocks. They cost a hundred million to a billion dollars each. And there's a lot of problems with that. People don't want those kind of industrial facilities in their backyard. They don't want them around the corner and they don't want them usually in their own city, right? Cities and companies don't wanna raise a hundred million dollars to a billion dollars for a recycling facility. So we're addressing that as well. What we're doing is we're, we call it village scale recycling where um, it's, it's local, it's distributed, and it's modular, which means that if, if, uh, if a Walmart supercenter, for example, has a lot of uh, plastic wrap that it wants to recycle, has a lot of cardboard, uh, cardboard boxes that it wants to recycle, and it has oil from the uh, Walmart auto center that it wants to recycle. Uh, the, the trucks from the Walmart uh, retail location take all of that back to the uh, distribution center, and then we have a recycling center behind the distribution center, and it's, it's uh, two or three 40-foot containers, shipping containers, that are behind the Walmart distribution center. And they, they load their, their used motor oil, their plastic, and their cardboard straight into the facility. It's fully automated. They only have to have someone load it a couple of times a day. And you would never even know it's there. Like if, if these two or three shipping containers were sitting behind a Walmart uh, distribution center, nobody would even know except there's a bobcat every once in a while, you know, loading a, a big bin or a big hopper with the plastic and cardboard, you know, two or three times a day. And, um, and that's it. It's all automated. So I have another oversimplified analogy. It, you're kind of like the bookmobile of the recycling industry. Yes, we are. We, That's a cool we, concept. We recycle where the waste is. And yeah. we, don't have, we don't have to ship waste. We don't have yeah. to truck waste hundreds of miles to a large facility, which dramatically increases the carbon footprint and the inefficiency in the system. Instead, you want to bring the recycling, a local distributed modular system to the waste location or close to the waste location so there's no transporting of waste and you don't have to build a hundred million dollar facility. And it's not this huge stinky facility that everybody hates to have nearby, right? And uh, that's right, we're, we're the book mill, book, bookmobile. Uh, it's funny, the gen, younger generation doesn't even know what a bookmobile is. Like, think, what, are, but... what are books? <laughs> but but uh, we, we could be very well be the, the bookmobile of, of recycling. We call it, we want to be the microgrid. Uh, we want to be to recycling what the microgrid is for power generation. And a microgrid means that you just have small generators, clean, efficient generators of electricity on the side of your uh, business or on the side of your, uh, you know, the, somewhere in your neighborhood or uh, the side of the factory instead of, having a big, huge, massive power generation facility, you know, that's a uh, hundred miles away. Cost-wise in terms of percentage, what is something like this run versus a three block long facility? Yeah, so instead of a hundred million dollars, you know, we're talking uh, under 10 million bucks, depending on the size. And that's, uh, that's, that's, you know, it's not cheap, but that's a very good bite size. I mean, that's almost, uh, you know, that's almost unheard of, frankly. That's, there are very, very few cases in this world where someone could deliver what we can do for under 10 million bucks. And so that's, that's easy for cities, that's easy for companies, uh, industrial companies that generate waste that want to recycle. 
Um, it's easy for uh, farmer co-ops that generate a ton of plastic. It's easy for car recyclers. It's that's doable, right? $100 million to a billion dollars, not so much. Yeah, that's when you're talking 90% reduction in price at a minimum. Yeah. Right? If yep. I did my math right. So this seems, this seems so easy. How come this isn't on the street yet? What's the holdup? Just where's, where, where's the snags? Yep, yep. Uh, there's, there's basically... Um, you know, three, three issues that have kept plastics and hydrocarbons from being recycled, um, you know, up to up until now. And that's why 12 to 14% is, is, is recycled and the rest isn't, you know, first it's hard to do. I mean, there are, there's air emissions problems that you have to deal with. Um, you know, there's, there's process problems. You have to keep the waste being constantly recycled instead of doing batches because batches, it just, it just doesn't work. So you have to find a, a, a constant process that will do it safely. And that is hard to do. Uh, you don't want to poison our air and you don't want to cause other problems by, you know, you don't want to cause bigger problems just because you're solving the plastics problem. So one, it's hard to do. Two, uh, like I said, the recycling plants are usually very large and, and expensive and we're solving that as well. And then, um, as I mentioned before, the, the sorting and shredding and washing adds too much inefficiency and complexity for, for the recycling. So those are the three big problems of why recycling isn't working very well today. And we said, if those are the three problems, let's, let's find a solution that, that addresses those three problems and solves those three problems. And it requires some ingenuity. And that's why we've got nine patents pending that, uh, that can help us get there. Okay, how about how do you get those patents not to pend anymore? <laughs> What's the hold up there? Is that another whole talk show episode? <laughs> you you could you could get an intellectual property lawyer and spend two hours spend two hours on that one. Really briefly, uh, you you file your patents with the patent office with the U.S. Patent Office, and they are backlogged and. Um, it takes a year or more for the U.S. Patent Office to get through their backlog of patent applications. So we've, we've turned in the patent applications and, and then you wait. You wait for them to get to it. And that'll probably be, you know, another three to six months, maybe nine months, depending on uh, if you're lucky or not. Will that be, will they give you a, a decision on all nine of them or is it one at a time? It's one at a time, yeah. Yay. Yeah. Yay. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, that's okay. You can, you can still go forward and, and commercialize, you know, you, you put a stake in the ground, right? With each patent application, you put a stake in your ground, you, you, you claim your territory, so to speak, and then you go ahead and commercialize. And then, uh, you know, you're hopeful that you'll get a patent. And if you do, then, then you're protected for that idea. And, and if not, there's, um, I think there's some sort of appeal process, but generally speaking, if you're not granted the, the patent, then you have to find a way to make it even more novel and more unique, uh, and then you try again. So it's a, that, that's a slow process. So when I see on a product says patent pending, but the product is out, yep. are, they just, are they putting themselves out there at risk? No, nope, because you're, you're, you're protected. So like I said, you put a stake in the ground and, okay. and that's your idea. And as long as you get a patent later, then uh, anybody else who, who saw your product on the shelf, so to speak, and then copied it, as soon as the patent comes out, they're no longer able to, to copy your idea. They can't commercialize that anymore. Okay. And so, um, you know, ideally you would be granted the patent before you actually commercialize your product, but given the weight of one to one and a half years, a lot of people just say, you know, we're going to commercialize first and hope for the patent second. Okay. Well, now I know what that, I've always seen that my whole life and never knew what that meant. I knew it was meant waiting, but I didn't know the details behind it. Yeah. Okay. So this technology, mm -hmm. have we covered all they want to talk about that? Cause I want to talk about your magic big technology or have, have about the admissions one this the the flux capacitor <laughs> okay is that are we going to talk about that one as well 
we we can briefly, although um, or is that one we're we're, we're still going to uh, apply for patents uh, for some of the ideas on that still, and we haven't yet, and so I have to be very brief uh, and guarded in what I say because we we still haven't filed uh, some of the patents that we're going to, but. But I can at least I can tell you a little bit about the, the high level idea. Let me. It, will this technology blow the recycling one out of the water in terms of how it can help the environment? Um, if 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 we're in in the best case scenario, um, if the if this emissions technology works as we think it should, uh, it would be even bigger than the recycling technology because the recycling technology there are there are different ways and methods to recycle there are different technologies out there to recycle some of them don't work very well obviously but there are um, what we're doing what we're trying to do on the air emissions is completely unique and there is nothing out there in the world right now that does what we're trying to do to uh, to solve the air emissions problem and I'll give you I'll give you an example. So um, one of the biggest problems in in air pollution and the biggest problem for global warming is CO two and CO two is the common enemy, right, of of environmentalists and and global warming. Um, and the reason we're having such a problem with CO two emissions, unlike other emissions, uh, so for example, if you have uh, sulfur sulfur dioxide uh, or carbon monoxide um, or other, other kinds of industrial gases, uh, there are technologies that exist to, to break up those gases before they're, before they're um, released in the atmosphere and to prevent the global warming effect or prevent the general pollution effect. Um, CO2, on the other hand, is, is one of the world's most stable molecules. It's one of the most stable molecules in, in the solar system. Uh, it's it's three three atoms in one line, um, carbon and two oxygen. A carbon in the middle and oxygen on either side, and um, it's very very stable. And the bonds, I think it's a double covalent bond, if I remember right. Which uh, means what for for the six year olds that are listening? Yeah, so it's a it's a it's a type of bond where um, think of two 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 by fours, you know, between the carbon and the oxygen. Um, I'm not a chemist. I'm not a chemist or a chemistry major, and I don't pretend to be one on a podcast or TV. <laughs> but uh, but remember, um, we have twelve year olds doing laundry listening to this show. <laughs> <laughs> so so uh, it's a very strong, stable molecular bond. Okay. And what that means is is that you can't break up the molecule into a carbon and two oxygen without immense forms of energy or heat. And so unlike other emissions that, uh, where you, you can apply chemicals or apply heat to break up that molecule and make it into something that's not offensive to the environment or harmful to the environment, CO2, you'd have to put so much energy and heat into breaking up the CO2 that it, it's not worth it. It literally like, it, it's like, um, <clears throat> You know, it's like paying a million dollars for an Uber ride down the street a couple of blocks, right? Like nobody would do that because it's so incredibly expensive and inefficient. Um, I think, I think uh, if I remember right, you've got, you've got to use heat of over 3000 degrees in order to break up a CO2, you know, molecule. It's that, that takes a whole wee, that, take, that takes a wee bit of energy to make that happen. Yes, it you does. That kind of heat. Like so, so, so only universities do it for in, in R&D labs, right? Because no one else can afford to do it, basically. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to, um, in, a very, in a very proprietary way, find a way to, to um, break up that molecule without requiring 3,000 degrees or immense forms of energy. And if you can do that, and I'm not saying that we plan on doing that, because what we're trying to do is... Uh, has, has never really been done uh, successfully on a in, in a commercial way, in a non-commercial way perhaps, but not in any way that would be commercially viable. Um, if you can find a way to break up the CO2 or other uh, nasty emissions molecules 
without immense forms of energy, then you you've got essentially uh, you know the magic wand for air emissions and putting CO two in the atmosphere and 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 uh, that would be that would be amazing. That would be really incredible. So you guys will be somewhat Christ-like in your existence if this happens. We might be a little bit famous if this thing happens. Do you, are are there human obstacles to what you're trying to do that would that would want to stop this? Uh, yeah, the the entire uh, you know air emissions industry and probably <laughs> other industries. Every, every, everybody that we would want to be putting out of business. Yeah, that's a that that industry right there is a multi billion dollar industry in terms of. Uh, emissions treatment so they would not uh we would not be on their christmas card list um come on there's nine of you you can you can david goliath here <laughs> it would be david goliath we'd have to we'd have to find some really big powerful partners really quickly uh because otherwise highly disruptive technologies tend to get squashed by people with really big pockets who don't want them to come out into the marketplace. So, um, is it not always, not always, I'm not, I'm not, it, a paranoid, yeah, I'm it, not a paranoid person, but, but sometimes that can happen. Well, so if it, would, I mean, if your whole livelihood is one technology and there's a little company that's going to come out and create, do better things for the world, but it's going to destroy your whole livelihood. I, I can see some <clears> people, you know, not, not uh, thinking that, thinking too highly of that. Yeah, yeah. Well, and you know what's crazy, Brian, is, is the way the world right now gets rid of CO2 is we bury it. Because, because there's no uh, commercially economic, economic, uh, economical way to, to deal with CO2, it's, it's crazy. The world right now, the standard methodology of getting rid, rid of CO2 is we drill, we, we get the oil drill, oil rig drilling equipment, and we drill a hole in the ground that's about 10,000 feet deep. That's two miles. That's crazy. To think and we pump that. and we pump CO2 down into the ground and cross our fingers that it doesn't come back up or escape <laughs> somewhere else. Okay, that's like, all right, we're gonna swallow some poison. Right. Oh. That's another teenage. This is another teenager analogy. We're going to the poison. There are so oh, many analogies here that, that are applicable. It's it's oh yeah, it's crazy. That so is- so that's that's what the world does because we're like, well, we can't shoot it out into space yet economically, and we can't get rid of it, and so we're going to bury it two miles underground and hope it doesn't. It's like it's kind of like the nuclear waste. You know, people say, hey, we're just going to bury nuclear waste in, in the desert of Nevada and hope that an earthquake doesn't, you know, crack, <laughs> cause crack, a problem and put a crack in our box, put a crack in our box. Um, that's but the problem is, is that, you know, even if there was a crack in the box and it's two miles deep under Nevada, it's still two miles deep. You know, the plutonium can't come up to the surface. It's two miles deep. But gas would absolutely, absolutely show up, you know, through cracks somewhere else. And so um, be out of necessity, because there's no better way, we just bury CO2 in the ground and hope it stays there. And that's the answer. And that to me is insanity. And we're trying to see if there's, even if we can, even if we can only reduce uh, CO2 on a small basis, if, if we were able to economically, commercialize a system that would take 10% of the CO2 generated and, and convert it into something else, a different molecule, uh, we would have a wildly successful solution compared to burying it two miles underground. Yeah, like 10%, 10% uh, you know, effectiveness for CO2, you would be, you would be a hero. Uh, there's a um, there's a system called direct air capture for CO2, and it takes, um, I think it takes zero point, I think it's 0.6%, I think it's 0.6% effective in removing CO2 from the air just by using big fans to capture air, and then you take the CO2 out of the air. If I remember right, it's 0.6% effective. 
and and people are putting hundreds and hundreds of millions and billions of dollars into direct air capture of CO2 technology because it's kind of like one of the best things we've got. So, like I said, if we were able to come out and say five or ten percent effectiveness, you know, we'd be uh, we might be a little bit famous. I don't know. You'd be superheroes again. <laughs> Twice. Well, we're 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 we'd be thrilled with one big commercial success or one modest commercial success just because of the good it would do for our world. I mean, I I think everybody agrees that we want to leave our kids a planet that's inhabitable, right? And nah, I've given up on that. In the last hundred years, in the last hundred years, we have not been doing a good job of that. And my my kids who are in college are like, you know, thanks a lot, older generation because we're, you're handing us all of these big problems, right? And, I, and I'm sympathetic to that, that's, that's an issue. I wanna, I wanna see what I can do to try and prevent uh, handing my kids and my grandkids some really, really bad problems that they didn't cause. Yeah, but you could come back and say, look, we gave you the iPhone, so shut up, <laughs> you know? So our, generation, so our generation does have a few W's, right? We do have a few W's. Well, we we've really created do. something to distract them from the world problems that we're also. Well, uh, that's true. That's, yeah, don't, let's not get me started into uh, the <laughs> pros and cons of uh, technology distraction. But um, as, a, as a parent, yeah, we all, we all wonder about the technology distraction. Look, we, we, we have got a bunch of wins, you know, in the last 10, 20 years technologically. Uh, I believe I'm an optimist in terms of technology. I think technology, um, you know, finds ways to solve really big problems and a lot of small and medium-sized problems over time. Uh, the, the question is, is how quickly does it take for the really big problems? And how, how, what's, what's the impact on us and our families and our neighborhoods in the world, you know, until those problems are solved through better technology? And that's 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 kind of a big question that we, you know, we won't know until we've got a solution. And to tell, I think it affects people personally. It may just be perceived as, oh, that's, that's someone else's problem. Let's kick the can down the road because it doesn't affect me. I see the blue sky every day. I don't know what you guys are talking about. Yeah. Well, or, or yeah, the, the, the government solution in many cases is just kick the can down the road. Um, or down the hole. Or down the hole, <laughs> or down, or down the two-mile deep hole, um, and you know, if that's your best solution, I guess it's better than putting it in the air. Uh, but that's not a very good solution, and um, you know, I don't think anyone's ever determined how much uh, that CO two is escaping in small, in small ways that you know we may or may not be able to detect so that we're putting on underground and crossing our fingers and it's not doing a good enough job and not as well as we think um that's that's the concern so okay i had this thought and it's probably completely naive and based on nothing but my thinking is all these chemicals and and elements and products they all came from the earth they're all part of the earth how are they destroying the earth that they're made you know all made from the same materials is it because when you combine the materials that come from the earth together they become something that's the earth doesn't like anymore does that make sense it's a very simplified question but yeah uh i mean you know it's it's, it's the chemistry of uh of man-made chemicals and man-made you know components i mean there are there's obviously harmful natural um, elements, you know, radioactive elements, et cetera, right? Um, uh, but nature, until we came around and the industrial revolution came around, um, you know, nature was doing a really good job of balancing uh, the, the ecosystem. And, you know, we as, as uh, mankind, we do things that, that uh, create a lot of imbalances and then and then we have to suffer the consequences of those imbalances. And, you know, uh, it's, that's, the, that's the whole nature of the industrial revolution and having, and not only that, just having 7 billion people on the planet, I guess. So are we playing God without a license, kind of? <laughs> that's over my pay grade, man. But okay. uh, there's a lot of people that would say yes. There's no that. rules on this show. You can say whatever you want. 
Yeah, I I think that a lot of people would agree with that statement that we've, uh, you know, we've we've probably taken liberties that we shouldn't have taken. I don't know. That's that's over my pay grade. I'm trying I'm trying to I'm trying to focus on one or two things and see what we can do to make it better. Is all. So just because we can doesn't mean we should all the time. Yeah, yeah. Look at look at gene splicing and gene editing. Right. That's probably a great. Um, that's probably a great uh, example of just because you can doesn't mean you should. I heard that line in the first Jurassic Park. I don't know if you remember that movie. Yes, yes, I do. Jeff Goldblum said that. He's like, just, just, just because we can doesn't doesn't mean we should. Yeah, I think Jurassic Park is going to be one of those um, movies that becomes documentary uh, prophetic. Yeah, prophetic in a way. Uh, just like 1984 has become prophetic in in many ways in terms of uh, government and technology, you know, being able to look over your shoulder constantly. Um, I think uh, I think uh, Jurassic Park and gene editing <laughs> may become prophetic, except it's not on animals; it's on people. Well, That's a yeah. scary thought. And and Dr. Seuss, the sneeches on the beaches is also prophetic on many other yeah. levels in terms of uh, social politics and things like that. So, I mean, that's another story, but yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Is there, what, what haven't I asked you about these things you guys are working on that you want people to know about? Uh, you know, um, we are, uh, we're, a, we're a small company. We're trying to make a difference. Um, you know, I've, I've tried to think, if I, if I wax poetic here just a little bit, I've tried to think about, um, you know, if, if we're successful, I'd like to encourage other people to, to take the leap and, 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 you know, not be intimidated by being an entrepreneur and not being intimidated by risk. And, um, you know, I, I won't, I won't, I'll sugarcoat it. You know, this last year has been really rough. Um, yeah, talk to us about the, the commitment and the, the sacrifice you've made personally for this. It's incredible. I mean, um, you know, I've gone a year uh, with essentially no pay, very, very, very little pay in, in a year, uh, actually over a year. Um, and not only have I gone without pay, I've been writing checks to, to support the company, right, and to support others' payroll. Um, I, I'm fortunate, fortunate enough to be in that position to some degree, although that, that can't last, you know, indefinitely, obviously. Um, others, my other partners have also been, some of my other partners have also been writing checks uh, to the company to, to invest and to keep everything afloat. Um, it's, it's a tough situation when you know there's a ticking time clock and money will run out and you've got to raise money or commercialize products or both before money runs out, right? And, um, and people's livelihoods are, are, you know, on your shoulders to some degree. I mean, it's, it's a team effort. It's a huge team effort, but, but uh, you know, I'm the CEO and, and a lot of the responsibility is mine. And um, there's a lot of laying awake at night, staring at the ceiling, wondering how we're gonna make it work. And, you know, the, the, uh, entrepreneurship is is fun, it's exciting, um, it's rewarding in many cases. It can be very, very stressful. You know, I I wasn't naive about the situation, but I picked a situation where, you know, it's kind of ten out of ten stressful, where you where you've got you've got essentially an unfunded or an underfunded startup, and you're largely responsible for finding funding and helping commercialize, you know, before. The money runs out, and that's uh, that's that's hard to do. It's hard. For, there's an impact on your family, right? So my my wife is affected. My kids are affected. I'm affected. Um, you know, this is not an individual sacrifice. It's a family sacrifice when you when you don't have an income. When when I'm stressed out of my gourd quite often. And and you know I've I've had I've had job job offers uh, I've had headhunters who know me and call me and say man I've got this great perfect situation for you uh, the pay is incredible the pay is the highest I've ever been paid in my life um, you can stay right where you're at and you can work from your home 
Uh, you don't have to move. You don't have to move to New York. You don't have to move to California. And you get to work with the one of the former uh, CEOs of, of a Fortune 10 company. And you, you'd be the partner of a former CEO of a Fortune 10 company. And this job would fit you perfectly. Why don't you come in and talk to us? And I think about it and talk about it with my wife and <clears throat> call back a few days later and reluctantly tell him no. And, and I hang up the phone and I'm like, am I freaking out of my mind <laughs> to turn that down? Like that's the pinnacle of your career job. It shows a lot about your character though, to do that. Cause it'd be easy to just like, I'm going to go, I'm going to go get what's mine. Take care of me. And you know, next to dirty air and water money is the next thing you need. Everything costs money. That's, that's a tough, that is tough. Yeah. I don't know if you told me, I don't know if you told me in our last discussion that you had had these huge offers. I'd uh, not, not a lot, but I've had enough to where it's, it's, uh, I almost, I, I see a, a headhunter's name on my phone when they're calling and I almost just don't want to pick it up. I don't want to talk to them because you're afraid of how good the offer is going to be. I'm afraid of, of what they're going to say, including the last one, which was a few months ago, which that was, that was rough. That was the, that was my dream job. Um, that was, uh, that was seven figures. That was, that was hard. That was really, really hard. But um, I feel like, I feel like I need to do this. And, and it's weird, you know, it's, it's weird to even hear me say that. Um, but I just have this feeling like I, I need to do this. I need to give this a shot. I, I want to see this work. I want to, I want to see it be successful. I think it will be successful. I think the recycling system absolutely without question can be successful. I think it will be successful. Um, but, you know, again, if you can, if you can try to try and hit that jackpot and, and, and have something so, so effective, so, uh, helpful and beneficial, then, you know, why not? Well, why and not worst case scenario, if it doesn't, maybe you guys, the efforts you've put in will push the technology that much further along for either you guys or someone else to go, Oh, we can pick up where these guys left off and boom, yeah. we've got it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what's, and that, and that's how the patent system works is, is you get patent protection, but then it's published to the world and they can see what you're doing. And they're like, Oh, well I can build on that. Right. I can, I can't use their process that they're doing. That's now patented for 18 years until the patent expires, but I can, build on that. And that's the, that's a great, you know, that's the great thing about our system that we've built in terms of patents and technology is, is the original inventor is, is protected for a while for their technology, but then it, you literally make it public in order for other people to see it and say, how can I make that even better? And that's the great, that's the great system that we have where we've got phones that fit in our pocket and laptops and internet and cars and electric cars and everything else that you know people have been building on other people's ideas for hundreds of years and and we're the beneficiaries and i i really believe in that system it's it's gotten us a long way yeah it's kind of like everything is stolen <laughs> you know really, there's nothing truly original because it's like oh building a better mousetrap you're you're standing on the shoulders of giants yeah right you really are you're you're standing on the shoulders of those who came before you and you're building on everything they've given you technologically and socially. And now we're, um, we're the beneficiaries, right? Like we are the bet we are drinking out of wells that we did not dig. And, and, uh, that's being kept warm by fires. We did not build. Exactly. Yes, we and do. there's, there's a lot of truth to that, you know, technologically socially, um, as a society, there's a lot of truth to that. How can people help? Uh, what do you, you need know, or, how can people help? You know, uh, find a way, find a way uh, to, to do your small part. Um, you know, some people say uh, don't, don't use, you know, single use water bottles, right? That's an easy way. You, you carry around a, a metal, uh, you know, multi-use water bottle instead of using a plastic water bottle every day or every other day or whatever. That's a small, easy way you can reduce uh, single-use plastics. 
Um, you can find a way to, uh, to recycle or use less. Um, you can find a way to be an entrepreneur and, and find a better mousetrap, you know, develop a better mousetrap. And, and I'm as, as hard as it's been, um, I'm still an advocate for entrepreneurship because I think uh, the world needs people who are willing to take risks and, and to push the boundaries uh, and uh, push the edge of the envelope. And we all benefit from that. Yeah, the reason we all have such easy lives now is because a ton of people were willing to take a lot of risk. Yeah. The reasons we have our cell phones and all of our technology, right, is because people took a lot of risks and, and a bunch of people failed along the way. I mean, it's, you know, but... I, if I, if I'm philosophical about it as a society, we need people who are willing to take risks to push the edge of the envelope and, uh, and benefit society. And, and so I'm, you know, I don't know if I'm going to be successful. I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea. I believe we will for the recycling system. I believe we'll be successful. Uh, we're, we're a few weeks away from closing our investment round. You know, if there's if there's some angel investors or family office investors who who want to who uh, want to invest and uh, you know help us in our quest, uh, they can contact me and I would love to talk to them and and give them more information. We're talking to um, we're in advanced conversations with two different strategic investors right now that I think are going to be writing uh, us multi-million dollar checks. And that's really exciting, but we still have uh, one to $2 million left to raise and uh, keeping our fingers crossed and working hard to get there. Well, you guys are pretty amazing for that, for what you're doing. That's, I know you have, have told me about this for the last year off and on, but I don't think I've ever really listened as well as I have today. So I appreciate you coming on and, and giving me the, 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 the down and dirty of all the all the cleaning up you're trying to do. <laughs> hey, I appreciate the analogies. I'm going to use the lawn. I mean, that's perfect. The lawn. All of them. That's, that's great. You know, that's, that's the, that's my show is not patented. My show is not patented. You we can steal anything. <laughs> you can uh, copyright it. And yeah. uh, there you go. Okay, uh, I'll lend you the $25 I've earned from this podcast in three years. Okay. All right. That'll say hey, every, every little bit helps. But you know, Brian, honestly, you uh, you've been a good friend, and you've been encouraging and supportive, and and I think that's one thing that people can do to help. It's, it's another thing is be supportive of people who are taking risks, you know, and some sometimes when when the four of us, you know, us and our spouses were out having dinner, and frankly, a lot of times I was having a bad day, and I needed to go out to dinner and talk and laugh and be with friends and kind of recenter right after a very stressful day and i just appreciate your friendship because it's it's been it's important to to give emotional and moral support to people who are trying to do really hard things and and are worried about failure all the time what you're saying is everyone needs a clown friend and no everyone needs a good friend <laughs> okay okay <laughs> Everyone needs a good friend, and that's uh, that's been important, and I appreciate. So when you say, what can people do to help, you've been a big help already, and I appreciate that. Regardless of the $25, you've, you've already been a good help. I've, committed, help. I've committed 25 bucks. To... <laughs> yeah. Hey, Paul, thank you. Awesome. I appreciate it again uh, for you sharing with us, and, and I'll, I'll put all this details in the show notes, and, and people can help out hopefully where they can, and, and then maybe we'll have another follow-up when this, when this works. That would be cool. Um, you know, there's a, there's a small chance. Well, there's, well, it's probably 50, 50 chance that we're going to be doing a, a crowdfunding and it would actually allow anyone, whether they're an accredited investor or just a regular, you know, regular person who wants to put in 50 bucks to a couple thousand dollars, uh, and invest in our recycling system. Um, and so if, if we actually do grow the crowdfunding route, um, that would be available to anyone, any, anyone in the public. And uh, if we do that, I'll, I'll let you know. If anyone's interested in putting in a few hundred bucks or a few thousand bucks, that would be an option. Or a few million. Or, you know, a six or seven figure check, you know, uh, we, could, we, we, we could handle that. Yeah. yeah. All right, man. Perfect. Thanks again. Hey, thanks.
This has been fun. Thank you again for listening to the Parish the Thought Show. We would love your comments and feedback on our website at briankeithparish.com slash feedback. If you love or hate what you hear, please give us a rating on whatever platform you find us. You're still here? Click on the next episode for more from the Parish the Thought Show.